The title of the message is, Your Storm Could Be Your Rescue. And it could be a rescue to others as well. This is part two uh, to Your Storm Could Be Your Rescue. We're in Jonah chapter two. We're going to study verse four down to verse 10. Uh, However, we're going to read the whole chapter in just a little bit. But let me get a little running start. This is a true story. It's 1862. A man by the name of Ira Sankey is on a steamship. He's making his way up the Delaware River. It's Christmas Eve. The passengers learn that Ira's on the ship. And they ask him, would you sing some songs? You're thinking, uh, who is Ira Sankey? Um, well, a very famous singer at that time. He was the worship leader for D.L. Moody. How many of you ever heard of D.L. Moody? Out of curiosity. Okay, the great evangelist of the day. And so, of course, it's Christmas Eve, and Ira's thinking, I'll sing a Christmas Eve or a Christmas song, but nothing is really coming to mind. Instead, the song, the shepherd's song, comes to mind that celebrates the Father's friendship in our life and his protection. And after he sung it, the man, this man came forward and asked Ira, hey, did you ever serve in the Union Army? And he said, yes. And he said, just out of curiosity, um, did you, were, were you ever doing picket duty? I mean, can you remember this picket duty in like 1862 on a night that the, the moon was really full and I was taken back? He said, yes, were, were you in the army as well? And he said, oh, I, I was a Confederate soldier. I was doing picket duty as well. He said, um, actually, I, I raised my musket. It was, it was you. I, I was, I was just about ready to shoot you. But you started to sing the song that you just sung on this boat. You started to sing the shepherd's song, how the Father is our friend, how He is our protector. And I lowered my musket. And the more you sang, I, I never raised it again because I thought, oh my goodness, the Lord God Himself is protecting this man. Well, of course, Ira Sankey just like embraced the man and, and they had these incredible moments. And the man said, you know, I, I've, I've never found the shepherd that you are singing about. Ira had a chance to lead the man to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love that story. You talk about a rescue. Here's the thing. I, I don't know what you're going through, but uh, I want you to think of whatever trial you may be in. Because as we noted last week, hey, you're either in one, you're moving out of one, or you're about ready to enter another trial. Aren't you excited you heard that? Okay, so it's like, no matter where you may be, I want you to think of trials or storms differently. And that is that the storm that you may be in or about ready to to find yourself in could very well be your rescue and could be a rescue actually ultimately to other people as well. Let me me tell you, it was not long ago that our world was like totally rocked uh, with an intense storm. Well, and I could even say it differently. There was a storm brewing that we didn't realize. And it was revealed to us. And I'm talking about well, uh, a battle that our precious daughter Sarah was, was experiencing. And she was found to have cancers, melanoma. It's a long backstory to it. It was really interesting. But it was revealed to us. And, you know, there's all kinds of possibilities when you're battling with such a cancer. Our heads were spinning. We brought our burdens to the Lord. We really felt that the Lord revealed it to heal it. And, and he did by the grace of God. And we thank him for it. But let me ask you, hey, are you in a storm? Because there's all kinds of different storms. There can be emotional storms, relational storms, uh, financial, physical, spiritual. Listen, 
There can be trials and storms you're in, your head's spinning, it's a bummer, it's short term. Then on on the other hand, it can be long-term storms that you are experiencing. As we learned last week, there's basically two categories to storms. One is the ones you fall into. We can put that up on the screen. Yeah, we talked about it. This is a part two. Because the Bible says, look, when you fall into various trials, it's like, hey, they just, they just hit us. Um, and why? Because we live in a broken world. And sometimes trials can be experienced because of the decisions of others that have impacted you. Now, the good news is Jesus said in this world, you're going to have trouble and storms, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So just watch this. Like, look, whatever storm you may be in, it, it could just have happened. You've fallen into it. And um, the Bible says these are storms that take place. On the other hand, there are the storms that are the result of a spiritual fall, which is more self-inflicted. And this was the storm that Jonah was in. In fact, if you just want to just jump back to chapter 1 real quick, check this out. And this is actually the first book we're studying uh, completely in our, as Rise family, I'm really excited about it. But in, jo- in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatzai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid a fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Time out. Whoa, Jonah, you are trying to run away from God himself, which is a run you'll never be successful in, which is a good thing. You know, God is omnipresent. He loves us. And in fact, he does pursue us. But he is trying to run from God's call in his life. And we kind of played off the fact that, you know, he's up near Nazareth and he's making his way down to Joppa, which was the port city at the time. And whenever we try to run from God, man, it's always downhill. You know, it always costs us something. He bought a fair. There's a consequence to it. And as we have been studying, this run ended up affecting a lot of innocent people. And so when we fall spiritually, it doesn't just have ramification in our own life. It actually affects others as well. We are our brother's keeper. We talked about how sin it's really a suicidal action of the will upon itself. Okay, a couple of different storms, right? You fall into, it's like, whoa. Other ones, you know, poor decisions, and there's consequences that come as a result. Now, here's the encouraging news. <laughs> I mean, whether you've fallen into a storm, whether or not you've made poor decisions, and there's kind of consequences, a storm that follows. I mean, it's encouraging. Hey, it's time to overcome You say, what? Man, I've been really going through it. Let me encourage you. No matter the problem, you know, no matter the past, you don't have to be defined by it. I mean, the Lord spoke of the fact that in Him we are more than overcomers. In Christ, there's more than hope. It's a living hope. I mean, we have the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. He indwells us. And I just want you to be encouraged real quick before we get back to the narrative you think back in history of some of the great patriarchs and matriarchs, think about what they overcame. Moses had to overcome leadership failure. Listen, it was significant. I mean, he was reared in Egypt. He had a passion to deliver his people. 
Israel from enslavement in Egypt. And he ended up way overzealous and he killed an Egyptian for which and then he needed to flee into the desert. So it could be said like the first 40 years of his life, you know, he's, he's being groomed to be a leader and he's thinking he's really fantastic. The next 40 years he's in the desert and it's real time of humility and growing and greater dependence upon the Lord. So it's like, you know, he goes from, I'm thinking I'm really hot stuff to I'm not that hot stuff. And then the last 40 years, you know, the Lord takes a man who thinks more highly than he ought to, and, and now more soberly and accurately, and he ends up using him in a great way. But man, he needed to overcome. I mean, I think of Joseph had to overcome mistreatment from a dysfunctional family. He did not let that overcome him. Hey, can I hear an amen to that? That's good stuff. Why? Because we all come from dysfunctional family. That's why. Okay. And, um, and then Nehemiah had to overcome discouragement with the work God had called him to. Hey, Jesus, I mean, our precious Lord, this is such sacred ground, but he's in the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. He's being squeezed like never before under incredible duress, sweating drops of blood at the base there of the Mount of Olives. And he's basically telling Peter, James, and John, you guys, um, you know, I'm going to give my life very soon. And, you know, would you stay awake with me and pray? And he takes off a few steps, and he's on his face, and he's praying. He gets up, and what are they doing? But they're sleeping, right? And he had to overcome that. I mean, Peter had to overcome discouragement with himself over just falling short. I mean, I deal with that. I mean, why did I say that? Or I, I, you know, why did I do that, you know? And you have to overcome those things. Mark had to overcome rejection by leadership. Lazarus had to overcome being dead. You know, it's like, you know, that was a big one. All right. And, and the thing is, kind of getting back to Jonah, let, let me just say, because this is a two-parter here. Um, and that is, what, what, has, what he has to overcome is a couple of things. One is, he does not like the mission that the Lord has called him to. Because as we have already studied, Nineveh, which is actually modern-day Mosul, right, which is the headquarters of ISIS, okay, Nineveh represented a terrorist nation. These guys were ruthless when they overcame their enemy. I talked about it last week. You know, they would cut off their legs and cut off an arm. And then, of course, there's this human being suffering and they would mock them, shaking the one arm that they had. They would pull out the prisoners' tongues, they would stretch their bodies with ropes so that they could be flayed alive and their skin displayed on city walls. Do you need to hear any more? Okay, all right, so it's like, all right. Anyways, it's like, listen, he's thinking to himself, hey man, you know, to Gehenna with these guys. Hey man, the Lord is calling me to go up there? Um, and, and by the way, a good Jewish boy in that city, a city, by the way, that Nahum had already prophesied would be destroyed? How, how long do you think? A good Jewish prophet would last walking around like the headquarters of ISIS type of a thing. So there's a lot going on. He's dealing with fear. When fear is informing our hearts, it minimizes possibilities. When faith is informing our heart, which is who the true and living God is, and, and that's when truth, it frees us, we see possibilities. I mean, he, he, he's, he's conflicted. In a lot of ways, I, I don't blame him. But the core issue is a worship issue. 
I mean, he, he not only has a problem with the mission, 500 miles to the north, I got a problem with that for lots of reasons, political, spiritual, social, stuff like that. But deep down inside also, it's, it's a worship issue. He's having an issue with the God who gave him the mission. He's battling with who God is. And actually the mission and the God who gave the mission work hand in glove. And last week we just talked about, I'm almost, almost done and we're going to make transition to the narrative. But you know, look, um, there's a couple of things that the Lord does amidst storms. One, he redeems pain. He redeems adversity. And this is painful for Jonah. He's run. The Lord is running him down. There's a storm. The, the sailors throw him overboard. The storm ceases. He's swallowed by this really big fish, which we're going to be talking further about. So he's like in these confined quarters. He's conscious. He's calling upon the Lord. Okay, and the Lord is going to redeem this pain. Uh, we're going to see it all the more. In addition to that, we're going to see, we saw this last week actually, that the Lord is managing our lives actually, that the Father is the pilot, it could be said. And amidst the turbulence of life, His presence and promises and plan become kind of the flight pattern of our lives. In other words, inevitably, we're going to have hardship. Inevitably, inevitably we're going to have turbulence in our life. And, and like the father, though, is our pilot, and he's a really good father. Can I hear another amen to that, right? So we got this turbulence, but then he like adjusts the plane with his presence, with his promises, with his plan, and he's going to get us to the destiny that he's prescribed. So that's kind of a run-up, all right? That's kind of a run-up, and we're talking about how your storm could actually be your rescue, Here's the thing. Let's look at chapter 2. What is chapter 2? Well, it begins with Jonah. It says, pray to the Lord as God from the fish's belly. All right? And, and actually what we see here in chapter 2, we're going to read just 10 verses. This is actually a praise. He's giving praise. He's thanking the Lord. He's celebrating how the Lord has redeemed this adversity in his life. And it says, and he cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. And out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and your billows and your waves passed over me. And then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, and yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake, forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, go to verse 4. Okay, this is a two-parter. This is where we left off last week. Let's begin to explain the verses. It says... That Jonah said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. All right, what's happening? Well, first of all, this reference to a holy temple, no doubt, is Jerusalem. 
You know, a temple is where the divine meets the earth. And in Jerusalem, there was the holy temple built that spoke of God's unique relationship with the children of Israel and his unique presence with Israel. So what you have here is you have this pain that he's going through that's clearly self-inflicted in the storm, but it had a purifying impact to end up calling out to the Lord in prayer that then led to renewed perspective on what is the most what is of most value, and that is worship and community and God's plan. So in other words, here you have this prophet on the run, right? And he's trying to run from the mission. And he's really, he's struggling with the God who gave him the mission. He's struggling with the innate goodness of the heavenly father. All right, he's, he ends up in the belly of a fish. He's experiencing pain. He's like, oh man, he, he's conscious. He cries out to the Lord. This pain has a purifying impact. What comes into focus is of what is real value. And that is, my goodness, I'm a part of this community that knows the Lord and worships the Lord. And the Lord has a plan for Israel to impact the entire world. Okay? And what does it lead us to? How can your storm be your rescue? Here's point number one. Check this out. The pain of storms, hey, brings into focus actually the value of worship and community. That's a good thing. It's true. You know, I have a friend who's an Orthodox rabbi, and his message is, he said this to me many times, he says, look, as Orthodox Jews, we have been the minority for so long. He said, you know, I'm paraphrasing his message, he's doing a lot better than I could do, but he's basically saying, hey, um, actually evangelicalism in America is now a minority. Um, you know, the, the culture war in America is intense, there's major breakdown and stuff like that. And so he, says, he says basically says maybe that the church can learn from the Jewish community how we've been able to survive all these years and retain our identity. It's like, you can ask the question, it's like, I mean, how, how, do, how does even a Jew exist today? It's not only the providential hand and power of God, but on a practical level, one of the things that was retained in the Jewish community was Shabbat, was Sabbath. How many are with me on that, right? So it's like setting a day aside to worship and to reflect, right? And he's just basically saying, his message is, hey, let me just tell you, you evangelicals, because, I mean, if you're going to survive, and we're more going to survive because we worship the Messiah, okay, and his kingdom will never break down. But if you're going to thrive in a culture that is breaking down, I mean, you have to be a counterculture to such a culture. You have to be. And as a result, you're going to have to find some way to ensure that you're fueling those values. And of course, that comes down to what we're doing this morning, which is we are worshiping together on the first day of the week. And the first day of the week is the day that Jesus resurrected from the dead. But it's critical. Listen, and I'm so proud of all of you being here. It's critical that believers meet with other believers. Every believer needs to be a part of a local church. Can I hear an amen to that, right? You need to be a part of a place where you are known by others and you know others. We need each other. The church is like coals in a hot hot barbecue pit, and every believer is like a piece of the coal. If we isolate ourselves, we become cold. If we gather with other believers, we benefit as a result, we're warmed up, we get hot, 
in our pursuit of the Lord Jesus. So here's the application. Hey, church family, and you're practicing it, but this is a time to increase our commitment to the community of Jesus Christ followers, not decrease it. Um, you know, my dad tells a story, and he just celebrated his 89th birthday, but he tells a story when he was out helping my sister in Texas sell her home. And, uh, well, yes. And anyways, she had gone to heaven, actually, and that's why he was out there helping all of her final things that needed to be addressed. But um, she, they, he learned of this fantastic uh, uh, what, uh, you know, agent, real estate agent. And um, so he got in contact with her, and she had this fantastic reputation, and, and she just basically said, Josh, I'm going to take care of you, and, all, and so forth and so on. But, but, but Josh, I, 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 I have to leave right now. You know, and, and he, didn't, he didn't meet too long with me. I had to leave right now because I got to go to Bible study. <laughs> and, and, I, and I've committed, it was like a Friday or something, I, I've committed to go to Bible study noon every Friday, and, and, and I, have, I have to go to Bible study. And, and here's my interesting, my dad's response, who's not a believer. He was so impressed with her priorities and values and commitment to community. So here's the thing. What is your commitment level to grow in community with fellow followers of the Lord Jesus? Seriously, on a scale of 1 to 10. Because here's the thing. What we have in America is, unfortunately, we have a decline in church attendance. And one of the main reasons, according to research, is the currents of our culture. We live in a culture of relativism. We live in a culture that increasingly lacks rhythms. How many of you remember a day on Sundays, sometimes gas stations were not even open? How many of you remember those days? Remember that? Okay. There's like not, not even half of you raise your hand. Okay. Which just tells you that I'm really old. But I remember that as a kid. You know, I remember that as a kid. The rhythms are so different. So you got the cultures of narcissism and relativism and hedonism and atheism, all this stuff. Man, our culture lacks rhythms, and it's, it's, it's like swallowing up believers to, to remain committed to the rhythms that the Lord has called us to. One leading evangelical said this. I love this. I found this late, and I'm going to put it in the message. He said, you know, one of the greatest crimes I see in our society today is a lot of Christians use the church, but don't love it. And if you, you want to be like Jesus, you must learn to love the bride of Christ. And if I were to say to you, hey, you know, I like you, I just don't like your body, you'd be offended. And so is Jesus. I mean, God wanted a family. And if God hadn't wanted a church, the universe would not exist. And it's the only thing that is going to last on this planet. And our hope lies not in the man we put in the White House. Our hope lies in the man we put on the cross. He's our Savior who resurrected from the dead, and we have no reason to put our heads down in shame. The media would have you think the church is a kitty, but it's a lion. On, a sun, on one Sunday in America, more people go and sit in a church service than go and sit in a professional sporting event of all kinds together in an entire year. Our government is what? 250 years old. The church is 2,000 years old. We have outlasted every uh, other ism for 2,000 years. And Jesus said, death itself will not overcome his church. 
Hey, remember what Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hey, the church is the counterculture to a culture that is breaking down. We need each other. We need to be known by each other. One of the beautiful things of our Wednesday night study is we learn to carry each other the more in our hearts and we're going to continue to do that. Hey, love the Lord and love his church. All right, look at verse five. Check it out. The waters surrounded me. Even to my soul, the deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And when I went down in the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. And yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. The pit is the idea of almost like, like just about death. You brought me up, resurrected me. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. So look up here real quick, right? What's going on? Um, well, there's renewal taking place. There's revival taking place. He's on the run. The Lord is running him down. He's like remembering, oh man, I'm a part of this community in Jerusalem and temple and relationship. This pain has a purifying impact upon my life. That's a positive. And then he's praying and he makes mention of his prayers going up into the holy temple, which would speak of God's presence itself. So Jonah is a castaway, surrounded by death. And yet the Lord hears him and lifts the prophet from the pit, send him for the grave, to reveal to Jonah. In verse 8, check it out with me, reveals really one of the most important lessons in life and perhaps even the most important. When he says in verse 8, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, I don't know how that strikes you. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it, it's like, what does that mean? Is that a riddle or something? Well, that's huge. And we need to really unpack it. The New Living Translation says, those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. It's like, what does that mean? You guys, I have to say, this, this idea of idols, you know, when I when I was first a believer, even as a pastor, as a young pastor, I was having a hard time wrapping my mind around what idolatry was. I mean, on one hand, I understood it. On the other hand, it, it was tough for me to wrap my mind around because I would hear like, hey man, if you have anything or anyone before God, you know, that's idolatry in a way that's true. But I was a young father and I was a young husband and I love my wife so much. I love my children, my precious firstborn daughters here this morning. I mean, and I, and I was having such a difficult time, to be frank with you, distinguishing between my love, and I thank you for your patience here, my love for the Lord and my family. I mean, I was like, well, I mean, I mean, yes, I, yes, I love the Lord. I, I could, I could say I, I, He's supreme, but emotionally, it was very difficult to make the distinction. And I, I love my wife, and I, and she's my life partner and my soulmate and my children. I'd give my life on a drop of a dime. I don't know if anybody can relate to this, but I had a wise old pastor just say, well, you know what? The Lord knows. Don't stress over it. But look, over the years, the idea, and this is very important, the idea of what an idol is and how, as 
followers of Jesus, we are actually rescued from idolatry has become much more clear. So the point number two is, look, your trial could be your deliverance. How? Because storms often reveal self-defeating and delusional idols that need to be replaced. What am I talking about? Number one, check this out. An idol, an idol is a God replacement. Okay, number two, by nature, idolatry is deifying created things. So a created thing. I mean, you know, everything that you see is, is created. Um, it's, and it can even be something that's really good. I mean, a good thing can become a bad thing if it keeps you from the best thing. But it is deifying created things. My job, my, my, my spouse, um, a, a goal. I'm making it a God, or I'm, I'm looking to it to deliver and give me what only the Lord God himself can give me. And in this way, God-making is the root of sin and misery and evil in the world. Idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It is setting of the whole heart on something other than the true and living God. You know, it's like the Greeks, we talked about this in our Get Lunch class. You know, the Greeks uh, worshipped uh, Aphrodite, beauty. Uh, worship Eros, power. Worship Artemis, wealth. You know, worship Hephaestus, accomplishment. I mean, those are like idols that we have deified in our culture, okay? And we look to them to deliver what only God can deliver in our life, which is wholeness, which is right identity and balance. Jesus rescues us from living in illusion of deifying created things. And I like how David Foster put it. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you feel weak and afraid, and, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, intellect and be being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. They are the default settings. They certainly are the default settings in our culture. Hey, the application is, man, keep your whole heart for Jesus alone. Can I hear an amen to that? Because they ultimately, listen, if I make the job or I make even a person or I make the pursuit or the goal, it's like my driving value in life. Ultimately, those things will abandon you. They not only lead you in the wrong trajectory, God never prescribed them. He wants us to have him as the Lord God of our lives. But, but they just terribly mistreat you as well. And what Jonah is saying is, man, um, man, the pain... And the storm has awoken me. In fact, this is to me in this chapter, this is like one of his big conclusions, which is like if you worship 
you know, any other thing than God himself. You forsake mercy and his grace. It ends up driving you into a pit. Okay, let's go on. Verse 9, we're almost done. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, and I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Yeah, like the Lord's rescue in Jonah. And he's rescuing us, and he has rescued us, and he will rescue us. It's his work, thank God. And it says in verse 10, so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Look up here for a second. It's like Jonah went through this incredible process. The Lord gives him a call. Go to Nineveh. No. He runs in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, you know, terrible storm, puts the sailors' lives, uh, threatens their lives, puts them in a very vulnerable place. He knows he's the reason for the storm. He says, he sees the pain in their face, asks them just to throw them overboard. They do. And the storm ceases. And yet all of a sudden, the next thing, next thing he finds himself in a, in, in a customized fish. It doesn't say whale. It's like a, a fish that God created. And he's conscious. And then he's just like, he's remembering, man, the temple. And he's remembering the Lord. And he's remembering his call. And he's remembering I'm a part of the community. And his pain has a purifying effect in his life. And he's crying out to the Lord. And it's like going through this process. You know, it just reminds you what James says. Let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect, lacking nothing. Now, when, when, this, when this whale or fish or whatever it was, you know, customized thing, threw him up, we don't know exactly where he was. You know, we, we know he left like the port city of Joppa in Israel. Where he ended up, we, we don't know. Um, the great American clergyman Clay Trumbull, who spearheaded major strides in the Sunday school movement, he underscored the fact that the Ninevites worshipped the fish god. And he pens, a multitude would be ready to follow the seemingly new avatar of the fish god, proclaiming the story of his uprising from the sea as he went on his mission to the city where the fish god had its very center of worship. Did you track with me on that? Here, in other words, the Lord called Jonah to bring a message to this terrorist regime up north who actually worshipped the fish god, Dagon. And all of a sudden, this Jewish prophet has this story of coming out of a fish. So it's like, whoa. It's like, who is this? All right, well, we could talk about that for quite some time, but those are all the thoughts I have on that. Anyways, um, here, here's the thing. Your storm could be your deliverance. Here's point number three, because God uses storms to transition us to greater impact in people's lives. And that's what happens in his life. I mean, the Lord actually has them in these cl- really closed you know, proximity, this terrible place in the belly of a customized fish, and yet it became this place of transport to use him in an impactful way. Hey, for those of you who don't know the story, he ends up in Nineveh, 40 days, he's walking around it, delivering a message. We're not so sure even what it was, but it awakened the city where there was a major revival from the ground up that impacted the leadership. In other words, the whole city, the whole country ended up repenting, right? But it just tells us, and this is the application, hey, you know, not only can the storm 
that we go through be a rescue to our lives. Be our rescue, because it brings renewed perspective. It brings the Lord greater intimacy in our life. gives us incredible wisdom. But on the other side of the storm, um, there is someone that the Lord has for you to impact and bless. So it's like Jonah's storm, yeah, led to greater usability. And on the other side, to have a huge impact upon the Assyrians. First Corinthians tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What's the point? I just want to double underscore. That is, look, you're going through a trial. We all have them. Storm. We're either in one, moving out of one, headed towards another one. Hey, look how the Lord is going to use it to draw you closer to Him. Look how the Lord is going to use it to uh, that on the other side of it, there are going to be individuals for which you are going to be able to be used by God to bring a blessing to. All right? Because He has us here not only to know Him, but to be a blessing in his name to others. Can I hear a big amen to that? All right, let me just say finally, look, um, well, we get to this next week, and that is the word of the Lord came a second time. He gives a second chance to Jonah. Um, The Ninevites end up hearing Jonah. The question is, um, will we hear the one? Well, Jesus said this, there is one who is greater among you than Jonah. Jesus said that. He said there's one greater among you. Yeah, Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. Jesus was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. He is alive. He ascended. As I mentioned, 2,000 years ago, it was just last Wednesday, it lines up historically. He launched his church 2,000 years ago next week, Sunday. The question is, will we listen to him? Oh, how wise we would to do just that. And I I just want to say this. Look, Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world but lose his soul? The Lord loves you. There's a God in heaven. What's the alternative? That we're byproducts of mindless nature for which we're all accidents? That's not true. I mean, for God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, wouldn't break down in the here and now, as well as cosmically and eternally, but have everlasting life. You say, what do I do with that? Number one, recognize what God has done for all of us. He sent his son to die on a cross. Why? To bridge the gap between God and man. Why? Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's separation from God. The soul that sins shall surely die. The Bible says that God's ear is not too heavy that he can't hear. His arm's not too short that he cannot save. But it's our sins that have separated us from God. Look, here's the thing. The core problem with all of our lives is a tweaked, broken relationship with the God who made us. If it's thrown off vertically... Everything is thrown off on the horizontal level. And that not only means in our own life, but throughout the world. And that's why 
Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, he brings to the earth justice. He brings to the earth wholeness and righteousness, the great Davidic king. But he first came to deal with the major problem, which is a broken relationship with God. So let me just say this. Look, if you're here for the first time, you've come numerous times, wherever. I mean, whatever the situation may be, I want to say, God loves you, and Jesus died for you on a cross. He loves you. No man has greater love than this. He would lay down his life for his friends. He laid his life down for you. Is that incredible or what? Three days later, resurrected from the dead. There's not an honest historian who could ever deny the incredible evidences of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Christianity would never have gotten off the ground unless it was absolutely clear to thousands of Jews 2,000 years ago that Jesus conquered the grave, that he was alive in bodily form, just as he said. 40 days later, he ascended to heaven, and he's promised to return, and he is going to come back. So recognize God made you. He loves you. He wants relationship with you. He's made a way in his son. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except to be through me. You say, Greg, what do I do with that? Oh, um, Jesus said we need to repent. And that is to turn from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. He said there's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many go that way. He said there's a narrow way that leads to eternal life. Few be that find it. So what I would ask you to do this morning, you know, is to say I'm willing to like turn from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. I don't know everything. No one does. I don't know, you know, but you know enough about the gospel that I've just explained to, to do something with it. And, and say, be willing to say, okay, I'm going to invite Christ to be my Savior and Lord. He really is just a prayer away because the Bible says those who call upon him shall be saved. Can I hear an amen to that? Hey, guys, let's pray at this time. Lord, Lord, thank you for this time. You are awesome and we love you. And thank you, Lord, for how you redeem suffering how you take something that's really a bummer and terrible, whether we fall into it, whether it's a consequence of choices, but how you, Lord, make it better, make us better to your glory. And, and Lord, we think of your suffering on the cross, and from it has come the greatest beauty. From it has come the greatest compassion. From it has come the greatest hope. Because you not only gave your life on the cross three days later, you resurrected, conquering the grave, just as you said you would. And Lord, thank you that you want relationship with us. I want to pray now for anyone here that is in a place of decision that, that Lord, you would just overshadow them with your presence. Give them the strength to make a right decision for you, which is to open their heart to you as Lord and Savior. How many of you would say, you know, Greg, I just want to ask, please, while our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, how many of you say, you know, Greg, this morning I'd like to receive Christ. You know, I, 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 I want to leave her knowing my sins are forgiven. If I were to die, I'd go to heaven. Hey, if that's you, uh, just while our heads are bowed, bowed and eyes are closed, if that's you, if you'd like to receive Christ, I want you just to raise up your hand. And, and I'm going to pray for you. And by raising up your hand, you'd be saying yes. You know, this morning, I, I want to know my sins are forgiven. I want to know if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. I want that settled. And I, I want to leave here knowing that I'm his child. So if you'd like to receive Christ, you just raise up your hand. Slip it up high so I can see it. Sometimes it's hard for me to see in a setting like this. And I'm going to pray for you and actually pray with you right where you're seated. But if you would like to receive Christ just in these final moments, I just want to make sure an invitation's been given. 
then you just raise up your hand. And by raising up your hand, you'd be saying, yes, and I want that to be settled in my life. Lord, Lord, just thank you again for this morning. If there is anyone here who doesn't know you, draw them, we pray, to yourself. And I pray it be today that their hearts would open to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen.